Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. The line comes. These six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. How that deviseth wicked imagination, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh loud, and he that soweth discord among brethren. This passage from Proverbs is very important in understanding why the Bible takes the very earnest and strong position that it does with regard to false witness. The Bible speaks very bluntly against it over and over again. The laws with respect to false witness are very severe. In Solomon, we have in this passage, seven sins cited. Three directly deal with matters of speech. But as commentators from ancient times have recognized, this passage in Solomon begins by asserting a very important and inescapable relationship. In verse 17, we are told the first three things that are hated by God and are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Now this order is not accidental. What it asserts is that sin is first of all mental, then verbal, then actual. There is an inescapable relationship between each of these three. But the mental becomes the verbal and the verbal becomes the actual. So that man who begins as a man thinketh, so is he. As a man begins to think, so he begins to speak and finally to act. This is stated over and over again in Scripture. Moreover, we find the lying tongue condemned because of the implications of what it reveals and what it will finally do in the Apocrypha as well. For example, Ben Sirach says, and from something false, what can be true? From an unclean thing, what can be clean? Summarizing here several passages of Scripture. He continues, the law must be observed without any such falsehood, and wisdom finds perfection in truthful lips. A thief is better than a habitual liar, but they are both doomed to destruction. His point is a good one. The thief 
rob you once. But a lie continues to rob you and to hurt you as it circulates. If a thief robs you of something, it's gone. That's finished. But a man who circulates a lie about you, that lie continues to circulate year in and year out. It remains. And hence, it is deadly serious. Now the matter of slander, of a lying tongue, is especially important to us in this age. It is the custom nowadays to look at the past and say, we've improved, things were bad then and they are good now, because our perspective is evolutionary. Now slander has existed in every age, but it is worse now. It has been refined into a science. Lying, slander has been made into a principle in the modern age. Humanistic man having no absolute law, therefore is not restrained by any fear of the consequences of a lie. Machiavelli, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, as well as present-day government officials, have revived the platonic doctrine of the right of the state to lie. In fact, the birth of the revolutionary era has made it basic to civil policy. Today, lying, therefore, is an accepted and legitimate instrument of state in the eyes of most men. And as a result, our history is savagely and viciously altered. We shall deal in about a month with some of the aspects of this perversion of history. But briefly, to cite a few examples now, because of the revolutionary temperament, it has become an established thing to lie about those against whom you are waging a revolutionary war. Thus, Louis XVI, a very good monarch, far better than his father and grandfather, has been much slandered. Marie Antoinette, his wife, never said when she was told the people have no bread, let them eat cake. From start to finish, the episode is false. She was a thoroughly good woman. Similarly, we are treated to a vast body of lies concerning Napoleon. These men are lied about because they were anti-revolutionary. We have seen two world wars in a vast abundance of lies. Now, warfare does require strategic deception. That is, in fighting a war, you conceal yourself, you camouflage, you use every kind of device that is necessary to deceive the enemy. This is one thing. But to lie about the character of the enemy is not justifiable. To go back to the example of Rahab, 
Rahab was under no obligation to tell the truth to someone seeking to break the law. She had no right to lie, let us say, about the king of Jericho. The two things are entirely different. In both world wars, we have seen a vast barrage of false witness with respect to Germany. It won't be necessary to go back to World War I. Since World War II, we have had the charge of six million Jews supposedly massacred. Now, French scholar von Franz, in summarizing the studies of the French socialist Paul Racinier, who was himself a prisoner in Buchenwald and wrote volume after volume, and they are incidentally here in the UCLA library in French, which exposed the myth of the six million. And Ponsan summarizes it in these words. Rossignier reached the conclusion that the number of Jews who died after deportation is approximately 1,200,000. And this figure, he tells us, has finally been accepted as valid by the Centre Mondial de Documentation. Likewise, he notes that Paul Hilberg, in his study of the same problem, reaches a total of 896,292 victims. Unquote. Now, some of these Jews died as a result of epidemics because there were many epidemics prevalent among the people, both prisoners and general population, because of malnutrition. Others were executed. Well, let's leave that fact for a while. We'll come back to it. It is interesting that not much is said concerning the murders at the same time by the communists. The Katyn Forest massacre by the Soviet forces of the 12,000 top men of the Polish forces has been thoroughly documented. And yet, we're not very often told of this. For over 400,000 Poles died on a deportation journey. Of the German army at Stalingrad that surrendered, 95,000 prisoners were taken. Only 5,000 prisoners were returned alive to Germany. Four million Germans from Silesia alone were deported to death. The total death toll of Germans at the hands of the comet is far in excess of six million of German civilians. Moreover, the British-American raid on Dresden, February 13, 1945, Dresden was a hospital city, killed 130,000 people, almost twice as many as Hiroshima. And there was absolutely no military reason for attacking Dresden. It was just a decision to engage in slaughter. 
Now let's examine another aspect of the same problem of slander. A very popular novel which sold millions of copies in paperback became a movie dealt with Auschwitz. It gave the name of real person as though it were not fiction. One Polish doctor who was a prisoner was charged in the novel and his name was actually given with performing 17,000 experiments on Jewish prisoners in surgery without anesthetic. The doctor, living in Britain at the time, sued for libel. The trial was held, and very quickly it became apparent that instead of 17,000 cases, there were 130 debated cases. These dealt with the sterilization of Jewish women and the castration of men. The cases were reduced finally to much less than that. It was established that some such cases actually existed. It was established that had the doctor refused, he would have been killed. The judge, in his summation to the jury, stated he could give no guidance about moral problems. Very interesting statement. The doctor won the case, but he was awarded the smallest coin of the British realm, a half penny, and his share of the legal expenses was 20,000 pounds. The jury agreed that he had been libeled, but felt that he was still morally guilty. Now, this trial and the data I have cited is important in order for us to consider this text. First, the mental condition, then the verbal expression, then the act. This is the sequence that Solomon cites. These data with respect to World War II, bring to focus a basic insensitivity to truth. And this insensitivity to truth characterizes the modern age. Now that any doctor under any pressure performs such operations is an ugly fact. 130 or 13 or 17 such operations is still a serious and an ugly fact. Why, then, the gross exaggeration? Why did the novel turn it into 17,000? And the figures concerning the Jews who died, why were they turned into 6 million, and now there are a few, say, 13 million? Why the exaggeration? And why the malicious misrepresentation concerning so many people who are connected with the war, like Laval and Quisling, who have been made into total villains? The reason is that life has become so cheap, so meaningless to modern humanism, that a murder, or 130 murders, mean nothing. 
Moreover, a generation that has been schooled to violence in films, books, television, and the like cannot be expected to react in horror to one or two murders or 15 or 17 operations by such a doctor, or a couple of hundred thousand executions of Jews, and several hundred thousand more dying of epidemics. Evil now, to be believable to people, has to be shown on a massive scale. The Nazis did execute Jews. It was a fearful evil. The communists did execute millions, and it was a fearful evil. The Americans and the British murdered at Dresden countless Germans, and it was a fearful evil. But we are now insensitive to any evil, unless it is by someone we dislike, and it is blown up to a fantastic degree. Now consider the implications of this. In the First World War, the propaganda accused people of doing this sort of thing in Germany. It was proven to be false. In World War II, everybody did some of it. But what we admitted concerning the enemy, we blew up to a fantastic degree. Men are now reconciled to a world where millions are murdered or are said to be murdered, and where hundreds of thousands are murdered by the enemy and millions by others. Now, what will be required in propaganda and in reality the next time. Solomon made it clear. The thought, the word, the act, the three are related. During World War II, we saw a hint of what was coming. One of the most popular books during World War II, it sold Tens of thousands of copies in paperback was by Kaufman, which called in 1941 for the total sterilization of all Germans and the elimination of the German nation. Ernest Hemingway, the novelist, called for the mass sterilization of all members of the Nazi party. A very distinguished Harvard anthropologist, Ernest Hutton, called for the wiping out the mass murder of the German leadership, and then taking all Germans and dispersing them throughout the rest of the world in order to destroy forever any Germany. This is what they talked about the last time. What will they do the next time to whatever nation is the loser? Today, Negroes speak freely of the mass murder of all whites. There are some whites who are beginning to long for the mass murder of all Negroes. And the shock of such thinking becomes less every day. The thought, the word, the act, 
every day Psalm is being proven right. The relationship comes closer and closer to becoming a total reality. Now basic to all lying tongues is the unwillingness to accept responsibility, and Satan is called by our Lord the Father of Life. Adam and Eve, after accepting Satan's principle in the garden, lied about their guilt. Wherever men are evading responsibility, they are liars. In denying their guilt and responsibility, they affirm the guilt and responsibility of the environment. Practically, what does this mean? Well, let's return to Ponsan whom I quoted on the supposed six million. Ponsans is a distinguished Frenchman, a Viscount, a dedicated Catholic. He has written a book, the thesis of which is that the Church indeed is in bad situation today, the Catholic Church. But whose fault is it? Not the Pope. Oh, to him it's unthinkable that anyone should say it's the fault of the Pope or of the bishops or of the Catholic laity. It is the ugly work of the Jews and the Freemasons and other subversive elements. Everyone from the Pope down in the church is whitewashed, and the guilt is placed elsewhere. This is the sin of Adam. The woman thou gavest to be with me, she did give me and I did eat. The refusal to accept responsibility, the insistence that it is someone else. Satan is the father of lies. And the root of lies is the unwillingness to escape, to assume responsibility, the desire to escape. Liars are like narcotic addicts. Just as an addict has to have a continually larger and larger dosage, so the liar needs a bigger and bigger lie to sustain himself. And as a result, the reality he creates becomes progressively more monstrous. These six, six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. A liar is more dangerous than Sarek said than at least. He destroys far more and he lets loose greater lies. A world that makes lies an instrument of state is a world bent on committing suicide and on killing all within range because it can converts its evil imagination into words and its words into murderous acts. 
Therefore, the word of the Lord must be seen only as law. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Unless this be a principle, lies become the principle of operation. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thy word is true. And indeed, O Lord, out of the heart of man proceed all abominations and iniquities. So keep our hearts by thy grace, that out of us may come not false witness, discord, and murder, but a true witness a godly law order, and peace among men. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Prisoners were? No, the tendency today is to lie about the persecution of Christians and even to deny that there were such persecutions. A couple of years ago, I cited the statement of one member of our group who had just been to Rome and taken a guided tour of the circus and was told by the guide that here, according to legends, the Christians were thrown to the lions. So the tendency today is to deny that there was any truth to this. The reality is that it was a policy of extermination that the Roman Empire pursued. The records of this are there in abundance. We don't know how many were killed. We do know that countless numbers were because at first in the early persecutions, the policy was to try to destroy the leadership and thereby to wipe out the Christian movement. Finally, it became a policy of massive extermination. So, how many died, we have no way of knowing. Yes? In the first century and a half, a very large percentage of the early church was made up of Jewish converts. However, especially after the first century, the number of Gentile converts increased rapidly, so that while there were many Jews among these who were martyred, Progressively, and especially when the all-out persecution came, the distinction was gone. 
In other words, those converted Jews were no longer known as Jews. They were simply Christians. The term, in fact, was then not uh, the Christian church, but the Christian race. Anyone who became a Christian automatically was no longer a Jew or a Roman or a Greek or anything else. He was a member of the Christian race. So that even in the liturgy of the church in those days and for several centuries thereafter, the prayers were not so much uh, protect, O Lord, this thy Christian church, but thy Christian people, thy Christian race. They were a people apart. Yes.
The pastor said, but I never knew you had a problem or wanted to discuss anything with me. And the answer of the man was, well, you should have sensed it. The man lost his pulpit. Now, the most obvious thing is, of course, that's a pretext. They couldn't find anything else. What was the problem? The man was beginning to upset a great many people. He had started a Christian school. It was a large, large congregation, and they could have a huge school just out of the children in the church. In every respect, he was beginning to preach faithfully the word of God, and they couldn't take it. And so they blew up in this meeting, and they reached around. They didn't have time to prepare a real uh, charge. And they came out with this, and they railroaded him out immediately. Anything to get rid of him. Now, this is the church today. And I could cite even more ridiculous things. But this is something that came up this week in a church that I felt was perhaps the finest in the state. So this is why you have anarchy among the students. You have it in your churches, in your schools, in the government. You have anarchy when our president sent our troops into Cambodia. There was no law, no act of Congress permitting him to do so. In fact, they were in Vietnam in violation of the Constitution. That's anarchy. So why shouldn't the students be anarchistic too when everybody else is? It's a part of the total community today. Anything can be restored if the faith behind it is restored, but the Constitution presupposes the belief that law is binding upon man, that law has an ultimate, transcendental, divine framework. Therefore, there can be law. When that idea is gone, and it is gone, how can you have law, a higher law, or a constitution? It's an impossibility. Yes? Oh, I heard the minister say that he was um, Compare the relationship, as I have before, 
between a king and his prime minister. The book of Proverbs in the last chapter gives us a very vivid picture of the amount of leadership, executive ability, uh, management that's evolved upon the average wife. And it was considerable. But all the same, the husband was the head of the household. Incidentally, uh, history again it here it has falsified the picture of women because we are given the idea that women were just drudges and uh, slaves until recent times when they were liberated. Now consider how, until fairly recently, until the Industrial Revolution, a man managed his business. The kind of industry you had before the Industrial Revolution was household industry. So that if you are a shoemaker and you can go to Europe and find many of these old shops or the buildings of them, you lived, say, in a very good establishment, and you had the upstairs as living quarters, and it could be quite uh, lovely. The downstairs was your working establishment, and you had apprentices working with you. Now, the woman had a great deal of power in the management of any home industry in those days. Sometimes, if the husband were out acting the salesman, she ran everything. It was the Industrial Revolution that demoted women, since it separated a man from his home and his place of work. And the woman suddenly became kind of superfluous, and children also. Whereas before, they were extremely important. And a man's work depended on having a good manager for a wife. So the usual picture of the woman in uh, the pre-industrial era is thoroughly falsified. Yes. Yes. Three years ago, 
I had an exchange with a UCLA professor by correspondence on this issue, and I challenged his ideas on Vietnam. I said, uh, superficially we may agree, but I question the validity of your premise. Would you be in favor of intervention in South Africa? And of course he was. So I said, your premise is basically a lawless one, because you're not holding to any constitutional premise. You are simply saying, in effect, let us not wage war against communism, but let us wage it against South Africa and any other regime which may not be to my liking. And of course, this is true of Bishop Kennedy also. Bishop Kennedy would not oppose, I suspect, intervention with respect to South Africa. Yes. Yes. A great deal of authority. In fact, uh, the picture there is of a woman who is so capable that her husband sits in the gate. That is, he has taken public office and turned over the management of all his affairs to her because his heart doth safely trust in her. Yes. Minister confession uh, 
gained its name. I believe it was an abbey. I'm a little rusty on it now. I've forgotten now. I, I used to know, but I don't. Yes, you...